For those of you who are, you know, very focused on what happens up here, some of you have observed that there's something different about up front, right? Something has changed. What's, what's missing? The pillar of truth is gone. <laughs> Did you notice we have a new podium custom made for the Bridge Church by our very own Larry Lampa. I'm so excited to have this. This was made to specifications, by the way. And this is a sturdy one, so I'm very grateful. Um, Today we're going to continue our series in in Revelation chapter 1 through 3. Today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 29. If you remember that chapter 1 is a vision of Christ, and it's so important that God wants His churches to see this as He begins the book, because He's going to then go and send seven letters to seven specific churches that He has a message for personally. And God intended that these messages be for the church throughout history. And that's why we have them today, and that's why uh, we are looking at them. The churches that he addresses today, we're going to look at two of them, both struggle with compromise and tolerance in their worldview. So we're going to look at that uh, today. In 2016, there was a survey among American evangelical Christians. Now, the word evangelical, although it's becoming very political and I'm getting uncomfortable using it, the word evangelical historically has been a good word to describe those who believe in the Bible, those who believe that Christ is the only way of salvation, those who believe that Jesus is God the Creator with the Father, along with the Father and the Son. those would describe what an, evangelist, uh, an evangelical Christian has been uh, down through the years. So this group did a survey, and their purpose was to track doctrinal compromise among current American Christians. So this goes back to 2016. I wonder where we've come since 2016. But here's an example, uh, a statement that they gave to so-called evangelical Christians. Here it is. People have the ability to turn to God on their own initiative. Yet, the Bible, and by the way, 82% of evangelical Christians said, yeah. Yet, the Bible teaches God is the only one who enables any of us to come to Him. Another statement, individuals must contribute to their own salvation. They must give something, add something, do something. And 74% of evangelicals said they agreed with that. Yet the Bible teaches that God um, is the only one who enables us to turn to Him. Another statement was, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Sounds kind of good at first. Think about this. Jesus is is the first and greatest being created by God. There's a problem with that. Jesus is the first and greatest being, but he is the creator. He is God. 
Yet, 65% of evangelicals surveyed agreed with this statement. You see, there is some compromise doctrinally. There is some theological slippage. Listen to this one. The Holy Spirit is a force, not a personal being. 56% of evangelicals agreed with that statement. Yet the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is God, the third person of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In another statement, my good deeds help me earn my place in heaven. It's just another way of coming at this question. My good deeds help me earn my place in heaven. Yet the Bible teaches that only Jesus' work on the cross provides for me the way to get to heaven. Now this last one. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity and Judaism and Islam, just to name a few. Yet the Bible teaches that worship, true worship, only comes through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit according to the Word of God, according to the Scriptures, according to truth. And what we see is, in, our, in American Christianity, we're seeing some um, huge spiritual, doctrinal slippage in what p- people believe. Doctrinal compromise. Um, More and more evangelical Christians, so-called evangelical Christians, do not know what the Bible teaches, or they do not want to believe what the Bible teaches. Um, And if you study history, what usually happens in, I would guess, nearly in every case, wherever there's significant doctrinal error becomes significant change in lifestyle choices. Um, Now... This is what we see in our world today, even among so-called Christians. Um, Faulty views impact their view of marriage. What they think is appropriate when it comes to talking about marriage in our culture today versus what God says. Um, It affects how we view gender issues in our world today. What, what the Bible has to say and, and what most people think, they are two different things. What is the value of human life in our culture from conception? What does God say? The sad thing is, what are Christians saying? You know, I expect non-Christians to think like non-Christians. I expect non-Christians to act like non-Christians. I have higher expectations for those people who profess a faith in Jesus Christ. Um, People's view of sexuality. What does our culture say about sexuality today? What what, What does the Christian culture say about sexuality today? And sadly, it's changed a lot. Since I have come to faith in Christ, um, what does God have to say? They're different. So today we're going to look at two churches. 
Uh, the first one is in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. This is to the church that dabbles in, Christ, uh, in compromise. The church that dabbles in compromise. We begin first with the church. Uh, the church, uh, in verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write. So Jesus is the speaker, and he's telling John to write this letter to this particular church. It is the church in Pergamum. Um, it's to the angel, and just as a reminder, the angel means messenger. Usually it means angelic messenger, um, angelic messenger a heavenly messenger. Some cases in the Bible have the word messenger, angelos, used for a human messenger. It's used of John the Baptist, John's disciples, and of Jesus' disciples. Personally, in this case, I believe this is a human messenger, very possibly a pastor of the church. So this could be to the pastor of the church in Pergamum. The name Pergamum comes from Pergamina, which means parchment, or what we would consider as paper. And so the city of Pergamum boasted of a tremendously huge library of 200,000 books. This is amazing in the first century. And they were a, a very religious city, and um, located in modern-day Turkey. We've talked about that. I have done maps with Ankara, where I know missionaries live, but we don't usually put it up. We're careful about when we put it up and what we say about it. But these cities all are in modern-day Turkey. Um, So it's a very religious city, and uh, there was a major temple there for emperor worship. And emperor worship was kind of common in, in many churches uh, in the first, or in many cities in the first century, and especially here. And the emperor at that time was Domitian, and he persecuted Christians uh, during this, this period. Um, this city was a healing center and had a temple to Asclepius. It had a temple to Dionysus, Athene, and Zeus. Very religious. This was a difficult city for a Christian community to thrive because there were so many different religious views and worldviews, and it was hostile toward uh, Christianity. And it's probably good if we just looked at the map one more time. Um, this is first century. Uh, the, um, that's Asia Minor. Asia, Asia Minor. And uh, we started, uh, see, John is writing from the, Isle of the, the island of Patmos. He's a prisoner there. Um, he, because of his faith, they, that's why they, they put him in jail and he, and he had to uh, quarry rocks for 10 years, and he was an elderly gentleman like myself, except a little bit older. And uh, we talked about Ephesus the very first week, and then we went to Smyrna, the, sec uh, the second church last week. And uh, we're going to move up right above Smyrna to, to Pergamum. And that's where we are today. Uh, that's where we start today. And um, so it's going to be Ephesus, Smyrna, now Pergamum, 
And Pergamum is 20 miles inland from Smyrna. And we have the portrait of Christ in uh, verse 12. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword, the portrait of Christ. This is a snapshot of Jesus, and it's taken from Revelation chapter 1, uh, verse 16. And there was this vision of Christ in chapter 1, and God wanted to get the attention of his people, and then he brought back clips of, uh, of that vision of who Jesus is. Jesus is a speaker, and he has this sharp, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. It's kind of a strange idea to have a sword coming out of your mouth uh, because it's coming out of his mouth. It's, it's, it's a picture of the word that comes from Jesus, the word of God. It's a double-edged sword because of the potential of God's word to give life and to execute death. This is a picture of Jesus when he returns. Also, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, he comes with a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth to judge the nations. And he does, and he will. And this sword coming out of his mouth has the authority to judge, has the authority to separate right from wrong and truth from error because truth matters. And that concerns me with the church today. It's just like an optional thing and it really is essential. In verse 13, we have the praise from Christ. You know, in each letter, there's this opportunity where Jesus commends his church. He begins with something positive to say about this church. He says in verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Jesus recognized this is a difficult place to live. This is a, a difficult place to do ministry. This is a difficult place to advance the kingdom of God and to make disciples for Jesus. He knows that. He knows where Satan lives, that Satan has his throne here. Now, that's a very unusual statement to talk about a location in the world where Satan lives. This very may well be a literal perspective that Satan actually is in this city at this particular time in history, and this is his stronghold. That's really, really possible. You have to remember that Satan can only be at one place at one time. He is, he is not omnip, uh, uh, omnipresent. He can't be. He's a created being, and he's limited like created beings. He is an angel, a very, very powerful angel. He's an evil angel, but he can only be at one place at one time. And it could be right here. It also could just be symbolic, mean this place is so dark and so evil, it's, it's under the influence of Satan. Satan is reigning in this place. Um, he says, I know where you live, I know where Satan has his throne. And here's the praise, yet you remain true to my name. This is amazing. I would love this to be true about the bridge. Yet you remain true to my name. You're so faithful. The commendation continues. He says, you did not renounce your faith in me. 
There was persecution. Not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Emperor worship put believers in this time period in a very, very difficult predicament. They were asked to renounce, recant, or reject their faith in Jesus Christ and give homage to the emperor as God. Not as a government official, but as God to replace Jesus with the emperor. That was a very difficult thing. Or you will face suffering, you will face punishment, you might even face death. And apparently, Antipas was a believer in Pergamum, and that's exactly what happened. He was a faithful witness, and he was executed for the cause of Christ. We know very little about Antipas other than what Jesus gives us here. And so Jesus commends his church for remaining true to him, even during this dark period. In verses 14 and 15, we have the criticism from Christ. This was not a perfect church. This is a good one for us to think about. All the churches face this possibility of a commendation or a praise from Jesus. I think Jesus would praise us. I, I think there are a lot of things about the bridge that make him happy and that he might make a list of things that we have done well. But keep in mind, he knows everything about us. And here he comes with a criticism of this church that's in a very, very difficult place to live, and they have been faithful and true. And here's what he says, this criticism. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you, not the whole church, but some among you holding to the teaching of Balaam. That sounds strange. Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Well, that sounds kind of strange because we don't know much about that in our culture. But what this is, is compromise, and we know about that. Some in the church were following the teaching of Balaam, meaning the doctrine of Balaam. It doesn't mean Balaam was being worshipped or anything like that, or that there was a discipleship program for Balaam. It's just that Jesus identifies this error in their thinking about the Word of God and how it's impacted this church. The story of Balaam is in Numbers 22 through 24. It's, it's, uh, the carryover is into Numbers 25, and it's clearly identified in Numbers 31 with this problem in. Problem was, Balaam was lured by Balak. Balaam was a, um, a, a, a so-called prophet, and he was not a Jewish prophet. He was not a prophet, a true prophet of God. But he had a connection of some kind where God spoke through him or spoke to him at different times. So Balaam was lured by the king of Midian, the Midianite people. And um, the, the king wanted Balaam to curse God's people. Because things have been going so well for God's people. And he's thinking, if I could just get this guy to curse these people, it would be better for us, the Midianites. Now, Balaam refused the king at first, and God interacted with Balaam and kept giving him direction about what to do, what the next steps should be. And um, eventually, and this, we get this from um, chapter 16, verse 31 of 1 Kings, Balaam advised the king, this is, he wouldn't curse Israel, but he advised the king of 
the Midianites, to entice men of Israel with the women of Midian. Invite them to their worship festivals and invite them into a sexual relationship. And their religious festivals sometimes included sexual relationships. Somehow, the, some of the men of Israel thought this was a good idea. And they did exactly that. And they brought God's divine wrath on them at a later date. But this doctrine um, of, that led people away, led them into a false worship where they actually um, ate food at a meal that, were, that was used to worship a false god like Baal. And it's not the same issue as 1 Corinthians 7 and Romans 14 about, about the church where there's this, this questionable thing or doubtful things. It's not the same issue. This is actually in a worship kind of service where they were connecting with a false god and sexual immorality in, in a together kind of fashion. Um, and this is huge compromise on the part of God's people. And there were people in the church in Pergamum who were sliding into compromise with the people of the city in their worship and their freedom of sexual immorality, which is not freedom in Christ. And then we come to verse 15. Likewise, you've also... You have those who hold to the teaching of Nic the Nicolaitans, two groups following the heir the of Balaam, the doctrine of Balaam, and then now this following the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We've talked about the Nicolaitans. The Ephesians um, were able to stay away from that. They, stay, they understood what was happening, and they held to the truth when it came to the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't know a lot about the Nicolaitans. There are several views, and most, you just have to say, we don't know for sure. Quite possible, following the Nicolaitans was um, influenced by Gnostic philosophy in the first century, and, and uh, it's a Greek philosophy, and not, not necessarily a religion, but it filtered into religions. And uh, the, this idea, the idea is philosophically the worldview that what I do in the body does not affect my soul in any way, that there's, a, there's no connection. It's not going to affect me eternally. And uh, so you think about, if you think about a Christian who thinks, well, maybe that's right, so maybe I don't need to keep all the rules that the Bible talks about. Maybe I do have that freedom to sleep around. Because that's exactly what happened. And there was sexual immorality in the church because they were following something not in the Bible. It was a worldview of the first century in Pergamum. And they, many of them, were adopting these things. And so the problem is one of compromise. It's compromise with their world. I love the quote from David Wells. Let's see that. We have that quote. What is worldliness? Now think about compromise. Um, Living in the world, but not of the world. Problem is, what if we become of the world and the world begins to sink into us? It is a system of values in any given age. So our age, this was written in 1999, but 
This is amazing, the insight this is into our culture today. It is that system of values in any given age which has at its center our fallen human perspectives, perspective which displaces God and his truth from the world. So it's the human worldview, humanism, displacing God's perspective. Okay, next slide. Which makes sin look normal. Boy, do we see that today? Sin is just normal. And righteousness seems strange. So if you are a righteous person, the culture thinks you're weird. Often. It thus gives great possibility to what is morally wrong and for that reason makes what is wrong seem normal. Just have a vote on that. In November, I'm not, that, I'm not, I don't mean that to be a, any kind of political statement. I just mean it's what people want. That's what will be the norm in our culture. It won't be based on Scripture. It won't be based on God's perspective. Don't be surprised if Christians don't, if non-Christians don't act like Christians. The sad thing is, is when Christians think like non-Christians. Okay, verse 16, the instructions of Christ. Each time Jesus gives his instructions to the church. Here is what he says in verse 16. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You know, that double-edged sword that can give life or execute judgment. He says, I'm going to come soon. It's a threat. It's a real threat. Jesus says, repent. He calls his church to repent, to change, to change their thinking, to change their mind, to change their behavior, uh, to stop going down the path that dishonors God, and then to reverse and choose a path that brings honor to God. And then comes the promise, verse 17. He says, whoever has ears... Let them hear what the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, says to the churches. So this, these letters were to be read in all the churches. And by the way, they for, are for all churches of all time. Whoever has ears, whoever perceives what Jesus says, whoever hears, let him hear. And of course, the idea of hearing is not just verbal. It's just not, you know, I got the sounds right. It's about taking it in. And then it's about adjusting your course and following Christ. And then he says, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now, I confess that doesn't sound very exciting. I don't know what that is exactly. But Jesus said he would give the hidden manna. Here's what I do know. In the Old Testament, God made a provision for his people in their struggle to walk with him in the desert for 40 years, and he gave them manna from heaven. It was a supernatural provision from God. It was bread. It turned out to be something they could actually eat and put in their stomachs. But the provision was supernatural. Uh, so what is hidden manna? Well, I'm not sure. It's, it's hidden. It's God's secret, secret provision in the midst of this persecution in the first century. Christ is the bread of life. 
And he is providing a hidden manna. And I don't think it has to be physical food in any way. And it makes me wonder what it was for Stephen in Acts chapter 7 when he was persecuted, when he was stoned to death at the stake in Jerusalem. He was stoned to death and he was able to look to heaven and he seemed to have joy in his heart and there was something mystical about him that there was something going on in his life that enabled him to get through this. And if if you've read any stories, he's not the only one in the history of the world, in the history of the church, who have faced death with something that came from God that was supernatural. Was it the hidden manna? Whatever it is, we're going to know one day. And it's all going to make sense. In verses 18 through 29, we come to the church that advocates tolerance. The problem of Pergamum was compromise. The problem for Thyatira is tolerance. Now, I confess they're closely related. The church is in verse 18 to the angel of the church in Thyatira, right? What do we know about this city, Thyatira? It's a great business center. Uh, it, it hosts various trades and guilds. There are a lot of workers there, a lot of skilled workers, and there are, there are guilds. It's like for us, we'd think like a, a trade union. Um, um, it was well known for producing purple dye. You, you remember Lydia, the seller of purple from, she, she sold purple fabrics from Thyatira. She was one of the very first Christians in uh, in, in Philippi. Uh, if a Christian would join one of these trade guilds, they would be participated, uh, they would be pressured into participating into worship of other gods because there were gods that went with some of the trade guilds. And Apollos was the patron saint of, uh, and Apollos was worshiped in Thyatira. And he was the patron saint of Thyatira. And so Christians could be pressured into worshiping some of the gods of the city where idols were worshipped. Emperor worship was not as prominent in Thyatira as in Pergamum. But Apollo, son of Zeus, and um, Apollo was the um, patron saint of Thyatira. Okay. We'll see the map again. So Thyatira is supposed to be about... I'm not sure we have a perfect map. It's supposed to be about 40 miles southeast. It looks a little closer than that on our map. This is an ancient map, though, so I don't know. It was created about 10 years ago, so... Could be off. The map's not perfect. The map is not inspired... The portrait, the, the portrait of Christ is in verse 18. These are the words of the Son of God. So remember, here's a snapshot. It's going to be a picture of what Jesus, you know, he let people see him in his glory in Revelation chapter 1. These are the words of the Son of God. So we know who this is. Whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are burnished bronze. That's Revelation chapter 1 verse 15. 
In this picture, he's speaking as a judge. His eyes are a blazing fire. He sees. He's omniscient. He sees everything. He can discern. His feet are of burnished bronze, displaying his strength. In a city, this would have been kind of a connecting point, in a city where there were lots of metal workers, and they got to see burnished bronze in the image of Christ. The praise comes from Christ in verse 19. So Jesus commends him here. He says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. That's amazing. Who wouldn't, what church wouldn't want Jesus to say that about them? I would want Jesus to say that about us. Wouldn't you? Their good works have been a service to Jesus. He knows that. They have displayed the love of Christ to their community. That's why they're there. That's fantastic. They have been a people of strong faith, of trust in God. They had grit. They, they demonstrated perseverance in these difficult times. They continued to grow and expand. They never stopped in doing these good works for Jesus. Very impressive. That would be a great epitaph for a church. A great one. They're not perfect. There's been some spiritual slippage within the church. Verses 20 through 23, the criticism from Christ. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I have this against you. I just wonder what he would say about us. And the great thing is we have a chance to be evaluating as we go. Just, just keep being reminded of what Scripture teaches us so we can just readjust when, when things slip. You're human. You're not perfect. We're all sinners. We're all walking a walk. But we just need to refocus from time to time to sharpen our focus back on Jesus In verse 20, he says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Okay, boy, that seems like we don't know Jezebel. We don't even like Jezebel, you know. What's, it, what's this have to do with us? This, this woman Jezebel calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she list, misleads my servants, here it is again, into sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. Boy, that's kind of a similar problem that we saw Jezebel was the wife of the king of Israel. The king's name was Ahab. He was one of the most evil kings in the history of Israel. Jezebel was an ungodly woman in the Old Testament that manipulated her weak husband. She was a nemesis to Elijah the prophet. She influenced her Jewish husband to worship the pagan god Baal which brought corruption and sexual immorality into the nation of Israel. It was like the king says it's okay. In the first century, Thyatira, there was a woman, either she was like Jezebel or she actually had the name Jezebel. But she did a similar kind of thing. She claimed to be a prophet, a spokesperson for God, yet her teaching corrupted God's people into sexual immorality. And um, 
sex outside of marriage was okay. For some people in the church in Thyatira. And um, this, this included all that religious emphasis. And, and it included sometimes sexual relationships in a worship experience that included meals that were served in honor of a false god. Jesus confronted Jezebel. Likely he did this by servants in the church, faithful servants in the church. He says, I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. She has been confronted, but she fails to change. No repentance on her part. Jesus says in verse 22, I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. Those who participate with her will suffer intensely. They are called to change their heart, to admit their sin, and they're called to follow Jesus. And then he says, I will strike her children dead. Oh, that sounds pretty cruel. Probably not any biological kids. This is, these are followers of Jezebel. Um, I will strike her children dead. Those who have embraced her teaching. This is going to be an example. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Jesus said that from the beginning. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, by the way. If you're a follower of Christ, if you're not, you're going to stand before the great white throne where there'll be eternal condemnation. The the judgment seat of Christ is where believers will stand before God one day and they will be rewarded for how they've lived. And there's going to be, I think, some disappoint there. Everybody gets into heaven in this particular group. None of them deserve to be there. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each one according to your deeds. The problem is tolerance. Jesus does not put up long with sexual immorality of his people. Never be surprised that non-Christians act like non-Christians. What really hurts is when Christians act like the rest of their world. They live in a way that dishonors God. That's very disappointing to Jesus. We live in a day, and you're well aware of what you see in the news. Listen to this. This was a poll, a Barna poll conducted in 2016. And it describes what our culture is like today. Think about this. Six years ago, and think about our culture today. The reason they track trends is because it really has an influence on what's coming down the pike in the future. Here's where, think about this. So, the best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. What do you think about that statement? The best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. 91% of U.S. adults agreed. 76% of practicing Christians agreed. The next one was, people should not criticize someone's, someone else's lifestyle choices. 
89% of U.S. Americans agreed. 76% of Christians agreed. Doesn't make any difference what scriptures teach. The third one is here. To be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things you desire most. Well, what do you desire most? 86% of U.S. adults agreed. 72% of Christians agreed. Yet the Bible teaches that fulfillment, joy, and contentment are found in Jesus. The highest goal in life is to enjoy it as much as possible. You know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The highest goal in life is to enjoy it as much as possible. 84% of U.S. adults agreed. 66% of Christians agreed. You know the Westminster Catechism? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your soul and with all your heart and all your mind. The next one says, people can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. 79% of U.S. adults agreed. 61% of Christians agreed. Yet Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. It does make a difference about relating to our society and communicating truth. That's love. We don't need tolerance when people are going to hell because there is a mission that we have. Yeah, I think the way we approach people and the way we treat people, we treat them with love and kindness and patience. We don't have to expect them to live like Christians. I'm glad somebody was patient with me. I was going totally in the opposite direction, and somebody loved me and listened to me and was patient with me and pointed the way. I didn't feel like I was being judged or condemned, but they just cared enough to point me to the truth. And God showed me the truth through that experience. How about this one? Any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is acceptable. Boy, primary worldview. 69% agreed, U.S. adults. 40% of Christians agreed. And yet the scriptures teach that sexual expression is designed by God for one man and one woman who are husband and wife. There is a new moral code in our country. It continues to change. It seems like it changes like week by week. How is it affecting the church? We don't have to be like other Christians or so-called Christians. We're called to a higher standard. So Jesus said to the followers of Jezebel that he was going to come and he was going to bring suffering. And that was like a physical suffering. There was going to be real pain involved. I don't know what that was. Could be some kind of disease. Who knows? But I do know in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was a situation where there was immorality in the church and God called the Apostle Paul to get the attention of the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 5 verses 4 and 5, and so a man had been sleeping with his stepmom, 
and a so-called Christian. And Paul says, whoa, wait a minute. You guys, you got to do something here. You, you're just ignoring this. There's, you're tolerating this situation. It is not good. And so he says, when you're assembled, the body is gathered, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. Hand this man over to Satan. Those are strong words. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So he's saying, I want you to get him out of the church. We call this excommunication sometimes. It's church discipline. There is a place where somebody needs to be removed because of the way they're living. If they don't change, you know, there's a way to approach people and give them time, warn them, and take them through steps. But this is beyond that. This is when it's time to ask that person to leave and have that person leave the church and they can't be a part of the church in this situation. Hand this man over to Satan. I mean, get him outside the church because there is going to be no protection from the Holy Spirit within the body of Christ. He's just going to be out in the world on his own. He's not going to follow God. He's on his own. He's out there where the God of this world is ruling our world system apart from God. For the destruction of the flesh, there's going to be some kind of physical issues, whether it's death, some kind of suffering, it could be a disease. Let, let Satan have his way on this guy, because we are, we, in this case, we're done. So that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So apparently, this believer is going to go to heaven, doesn't deserve it. But he is not going to be protected by safety in the church body of Christ. Okay, let me give you one more example. 1 Corinthians 11. So we know this. This is a Paul talking to the church at Corinth about communion, about the Lord's table, and people have been abusing it. They've not been taking it seriously. They've been doing their own thing. They've been eating because they're hungry, and they've been drinking so they can drink too much. And there's a certain group of them, and he says, or those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, without, you know, just going through the motions, it's discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So there's a kind of judgment that comes from God. Verse 30, that is why many among you are weak and sick. He's saying this can affect you physically. Some people are weak. Some people are sick because they have abused the Lord's table. And a number of you in the church family have fallen asleep. Dead. A believer sleep. Not dead eternally. But they've been removed because of dishonoring God. There is true church discipline when we take things lightly. So, um, next in verses 24 through uh, 25, we have the instructions of Christ. He says, now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira. So not, not everybody has, has followed in this way. There are some who have been faithful to Jesus. And that's why he says, the rest of you. Um, to you who do not hold to her teachings, the teachings of Jezebel, have not learned sacred, uh, Satan's so-called deep secrets. 
Those are secret religious practices. Uh, we don't want to know what they were anyway. Magic arts, divination, different things that religious groups have done. He said, he says, I won't impose any burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. Continue to be faithful. Continue to love people. Continue to endure and persevere. Continue to keep living by faith and trusting God and his word. Keep displaying Christ's love. Keep serving him faithfully. That's a high commendation to that group. The promise of Christ in verses 26 through 29, we're coming to the, to the end of this section. He says, to, those who, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, who perseveres, I will give authority over the nations, that one who will rule with them an iron scepter and will dash them in pieces like pottery. Now this sounds a little scary. To the one who is victorious, to the overcomer, Jesus has a huge promotion ahead. And if you've been here a while, we've already seen that in Revelation chapter 20. When Jesus will reign on earth for 1,000 years, and his church will reign with him and have authority in our world during that time. That is, we're going to go away and we're going to come back. We're going to go with Jesus in heaven and then we're going to come back and we will have resurrected bodies, and we will rule with him. Now, I'm glad I already spent a lot of time teaching that in the past, so I don't have to explain all of it here this morning. The context here is from Psalm chapter 2. It's the Messiah reigning and ruling over, his, over the nations. And that's fulfilled in Revelation chapter 20. And that's going to include us who are Christ's followers. And Jesus says, just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one, that one who uh, perseveres, that one who is victorious, the morning star. Um, I don't know what that is exactly. Jesus is the morning star, the bright morning star. And um, we're going we're gonna to be given, we're going to have more of Christ, that's for sure. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. The challenge is to hear and receive what Jesus has, his message. Do we truly get it that he is concerned about compromise, he is concerned about tolerance, and truth matters? Will we repent? You know, sometimes we just need to, you know, take stock in our lives and reevaluate and, okay, I need to, this is not good and I need to deal with that and I need help with it. I need to confess that it's wrong and I need to ask Jesus to help me turn around. We need to realign. We need to engage with God. We need to engage with Scripture. We need to return to prayer so that we can keep in close contact with, with Jesus. So as, as a reminder, as to refocus this morning, I have a couple of passages for us to, to look at. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The writer of Hebrews says, We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard, so that we do not drift away. That is a problem. It's spiritual slippage. We can drift. We go into neutral, and we're going down the river. We're going, it's down current. We, but 
when we're moving, we can go against the grain and we can go up current, upstream in our spiritual life because life is hard. And we need to keep moving with Jesus. Um, listen to D.A. Carson. He says, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from the grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, and obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it Relax, relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godliness, uh, godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated, that we are free. Passage continues. Um, For since the message spoken through the angels, this would be bringing the law to Moses. They were given through angels to Moses. They were binding, and every violation of disobedience received just punishment. Next slide. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Just want to slide into heaven. I think we're going to be disappointed when we stand before Jesus. If that's the approach we take. First uh, Thess, one more passage here. First Thessalonians chapter 4. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. He wants you to be holy. He wants you to be set apart for Him. Set apart so that you can serve. We have to be clean, set apart, sanctified. And that's what it means to be holy, by the way. Set apart by Christ. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like we see every day in our culture. Not like those who do not know God. Next slide. Okay. And then I'll just close with this. Do not merely listen to the word, but do what it says. Do what it says. We live in a, in a day where there's so much temptation to compromise, so much temptation just to be tolerant. You know, we think, sometimes Christians think, well, I need to be loving. Absolutely, you do. You need to love people. You don't have to love sin. Sin isn't okay. And we don't have to judge other people, but we need to know what sin is and what it is not. The question is, will we stand with Jesus? Will we stand for Jesus? Um, will he praise us one day? Or is he going to be highly disappointed? Let's stand for prayer. Father, I thank you this morning for your word and the letter to the two churches and the reminder about compromise and tolerance. God, cause us to be serious about your word because truth matters, matters to you. Help us to think through our daily decisions. Help us to think through what we really value. What's really important to us? Is it what's important to you? May we take you 
seriously. May you give us the heart to be submissive to the Lordship of Christ. May we continue to grow. May we continue to honor you in all that we do. For Jesus' sake, amen.